Loving Father, I want to thank you for your goodness to us. I want to thank you for I share in uh, the commitment it has to share everywhere the gospel of Jesus Christ and these beautiful teachings, these beautiful messages that we have from Scripture that are relevant to a last day world and the last day church. And Father, I pray that you be with us as we explore this subject. May we come closer to you as a result of it. In Christ's name, amen. Douglas Cooper tells the story when he was a little boy, about four years old, that he was at his uh, grandfather's farm. And he said that this was in, in the Midwest, in northern Midwest, and during the winter time, uh, you know, everything freezes and there's a lot of snow and it's very cold. But he was playing in this barrel that had frozen over, the top of it had frozen over, and he was, he was fascinated by the shimmering light that reflected off the eyes of this barrel. And so he leaned further and further into it in order to try to, uh, you know, playing with it and so forth. And lo and behold, suddenly he lost his balance and the boy went headlong down this frozen water and was pinned at his sides. Now, can you imagine... Can you imagine, all right, little boy, four or five years old, pinned at his side, cannot get out, cannot cry out for help. His, most of his body is underwater, his head first. His grandfather doesn't know anything about it because he is, there's some noise where he's working. So he, he didn't hear anything. And how long would he have? Well, he would have a few seconds. And then he would drown there. Can you imagine the tragedy of a drowning by your grandson in your own farm in such a thing like that? I mean, it's really tragic to think about it. Well, just at this moment, the milkman pulls up. And he sees these two little legs going up like this. And he put two and two together and immediately ran to it and pulled the boy out of the water. And he could live again. He could breathe again. And Douglas Cooper says that he never forgot that experience, and you can, ex you can imagine how that, well, that would be the case, because it was life or death. And he said, it was then that I understood how important air was. Most Christians live what I call below the waterline. We are so used to it that we don't even realize we live about three inches below the waterline. We are in an ocean, in a world of an ocean of water, if you will. We live below that time, and we don't know that there is a whole new world above it. We think this is the way things are, and we are half drowning, but assume this is normal. And a lot of Christians live 
um, lives that are not victorious lives, that are not joyful lives, that are not meaningful, that are not lives of overcoming or fruitfulness, because we are just so caught up in the world in which we live. And yet God has a whole new dimension planned for us. And that's the difference between living by the Spirit and not living by the Spirit. That's the difference between really breathing and not breathing and thinking that that's the way things really are. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again of water and the Spirit. Notice this. He said this to Nicodemus, okay? Who was Nicodemus? Was Nicodemus a street gang member? Was Nicodemus a drug addict? Was Nicodemus a criminal person who was clearly uh, against God's will? No, Nicodemus was a church leader. He was a theologian. He was, all his life, he, all his adult life, he had instructed others how to know God better. And Jesus says to this theologian, you must be born again. Now that ought to be, that is significant because most of us think that being born again is something that needs to happen to other people. And yet, Jesus doesn't have the context of, quote-unquote, other people. He talks to us, people who are very much involved in the church and in ministry. And he says to us, you must be born again of water and the Spirit. This is what Jesus says in John 6, 36. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and their life. Now, this is a beautiful text, okay? So what Jesus says, if you, if you swallow those words, this is in the context of he, he's speaking about him being the bread of life and about how much we need to eat him, the bread of life. And the Bible says that people were offended at this word and they left, you know, a whole bunch of them no longer walked with him. He says... The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit. So God's intention is for us to see the word of God be, make such an impact in our lives that it would be the equivalent of new life, of real life versus no life whatsoever. So what will the spirit do for you? What will the spirit of God do for us? The night of Jesus' Passover, when he spent it with his disciples, he spoke about the coming of the Holy Spirit. That I believe, the more I've studied this, the more I'm convinced this is not exactly what he had in mind. That was not what he had designed in his mind to talk about, necessarily. Why? Because Jesus, I mean, the logical thing for him would have been to have talked about the cross, about his soon to take place sacrifice about what that would mean. For six months, God had been saying, Jesus had been saying that he would be taken by the hands of sinners and that he would die and on the third day he would resurrect. And the Bible says that that evening, and the Zarvages also corroborates this, 
that that evening he already felt oppressed by the weight of sin on, his, on himself, um, the, you know, that he was carrying for us, so much so that the book of Luke says that he thought he was dying. He, he was grieved unto death. So what was Jesus' need that night? Jesus' need that night was the, the support and companionship and friendship of, his, of the disciples. He needed them to say, Jesus, we know you're going to go through a terrible ordeal, but we're praying for you. We're going to be there for you. We understand why, why you are going through this. Not, not a hint that they understood any of that. You know, the only disciple that really understood Jesus' death before he died, that was Mary Magdalene. She is the only one. But none of the Twelve understood it, or others. And so he says, he turned then, he turned it up, you know, instead of, instead of expecting compassion and companionship and support from his disciples, which is what should have happened, he gave it to them. Because they said, you know, he said in, in, in John 13, he says, you are sad because I'm telling you I'm going to get, leave. You know, I'm going, to, I'm going to take off. And you're sad because of this. And so then he introduces to them the Holy Spirit. And he says, I am going to ask the Father. Here it is. I tell you the truth. This is chapter 14, verse 16. It is to your advantage. No, this is actually, actually chapter 16, verse 7. It is to your advantage... That I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. That word helper or comforter, that is the word, that is the word parakletos in Greek. Parakletos means one who is right alongside you. We still use that in English. We use the same uh, preposition in English. We use um, Para, para, paralegal, parallel, right? That's a parallel, something that's parallel. It goes right along, right? A paralegal is somebody who does the work of a legal person, right? So you have, I, if I do not go away, the helper, the paracletos, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to who? To you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world. You notice that the Holy Spirit is being sent to his church, to his disciples. But that will, con the Holy Spirit will convict the world. You notice that. It doesn't say that the Holy Spirit will convict the church. It says that the Holy Spirit will convict the world. But the Holy Spirit will not be sent to the world. It will be sent, he will be sent to the church. When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. For years, I didn't fully understand what these three things that the world would be convicted of really meant. But after some time, I began to understand the context. And the context is the world that doesn't know him. Do you realize, for instance, that just over one half of the whole world does not know, does not have any idea who Jesus Christ is, has not heard the name, and uh, they don't know what a Bible is. They, they have no clue. 
The only understanding they have is like, you know, there, that there are Christian countries in the West. That's about it. But they don't know what all of that means. They don't know who Jesus is. They don't know what he has done for us. Nothing. That's just over half of the world population. Over 3.5 billion people have no clue. The context is a world that doesn't know him. And so, Jesus is saying, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to the world. This is what he will do for the world. He will convict people of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. What does that mean? Of sin. He says, concerning sin, verse 9, because they do not believe in me. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, he explains, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. What does that mean? And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. What does that mean? All right, here's, here's a little bit of a, a help to understand that. I have in this table the factors, sin, righteousness, and judgment. And what's the reason? Jesus gives us the reason. Now, we need to understand the meaning, all right? So what's the reason? The reason for sin, he says, is because they will not believe in him. Sure enough, many people do not believe in Jesus because they do not know Jesus. They don't have access to Jesus the same way that you and me have access to Jesus, right? So what's the explanation? It is the Spirit who would convict on other grounds. Think about it for a moment. Jesus came to show us the Father. That was one of his objectives, right? And he did so through three and a half years of public ministry. But that, all, that was only limited to a group of people in Palestine at that time. He, would, he went to Tyre and Sidon. He went to the Decapolis, you know, over on the other side of Jordan. He went to a few pagan cities. But it was very limited, right? That's why we have the Gospels, and the Gospels really got the word out. But that word out got to mostly the Roman Empire. In the Roman Empire, the Christians that, became, that were in the Roman Empire shared some of that. And some of that went into northern Africa and, and uh, eastern Africa. And some of that went into, into Pakistan, what is today Pakistan, and, and uh, India, but it is a fairly limited, and obviously it was Christians, Western missionary, missionaries, who took the rest of the word, you know, to the rest of Africa and to South Pacific and to Asia, etc., etc. But the truth of the matter is that Jesus had a very limited time to show who he was. But the Holy Spirit will not be limited by any of those hindrances. See, Jesus right now is one person. He can only be in one place at a time. Can you think about that? I mean, that's part of his sacrifice for us. That he became a human being forever this way. But the Holy Spirit can be everywhere at the same time. Impacting. And so when Jesus says, they will be convicted of sin... That's not because they believe in Jesus. It's because the Holy Spirit is going to work in their lives in such a way that they will have a sense of right and wrong. They will have a sense of, of, of what they should and should not be doing. In fact, there are fascinating stories over his, uh, time of history. For instance, uh, an Inca, an Inca um, king, 
or chief, who became convicted that there must be a God that was greater than the greatest God they had. The greatest God they had was the Son. And he started reasoning and says, if that God was so great, how come a single cloud can phase him out of sight? And so he started concluding that there must be a God that is bigger than the sun. A God that maybe is responsible for the sun as well as the cloud. And little by little, he started thinking, oh, there are beautiful evidences of this in history, uh, making conclusions that are actually biblical conclusions about who God is. And he instructed to the, de- to, to, to the penalty of death all the, his own court as well as the, the uh, higher classes, the better educated classes, to worship the unknown God. To worship a God that could not be seen. To worship a God who, he says, must have created all of these things. Okay? Now, who do you think that brings, brought this man to that conclusion? He doesn't know anything about Jesus. Never did. Well, that is the work of the Holy Spirit. In, 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 I mean, there are many stories like that from all over the world. For instance, stories in Thailand or in, in Myanmar, for instance, where um, tribes, all of a sudden, they, in their stories, they told stories that are biblical about Jesus, about God, about right and wrong. And then all of a sudden, 800 years after they began telling those stories, that was part of their folklore, they see the first white missionary come back with a Bible. And when he's teaching them the Bible, they said, we already know this. How do you know this? Because there was a, a, a bright being who showed up to one of our chiefs and he told them, this is the truth about this. That is the work of the Holy Spirit, you see. In spite of the fact that Jesus is not known. A second one, righteousness. How will they be convicted of righteousness? Well, Jesus has gone to heaven. He says, he says I'm going to go to heaven. So how could they be convicted of righteousness? See, whenever Jesus walked around, people were convicted of righteousness because he was the personification of right. And, 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 and but when Jesus is gone, how would that happen? Well, the Spirit would be the one convicting what is right. And that goes right along with with the previous point. And how about judgment? Satan has been judged, he says. Jesus gave the reason. Satan has been judged. Well, the explanation is the Spirit would convict people there is a day of reckoning. Have you ever met people who are not going to church, who don't go to church at all, but who have a sense that something is not right about the world, and they have a sense that one day we're going to have to give an account for what we're doing? Well, who do you think brings that conviction to people's minds? That is the Holy Spirit. That is what the Holy Spirit will... So that's why Ellen White is correct when she says that the last movement will be rapid ones because God, the Holy Spirit, has been working with people all along. The biggest issue is not the world's conversion. The biggest issue is the church's conversion. 
because we already think we are born again. So this is what the Spirit would do in the world, and we could really spend a lot more time about that, but I want us to get to what He will do in our midst. I will send Him, Jesus said, to you, the church, and when He comes, He will convict the world. So how does God intend to convict the world? Through us. Wow. He intends to convict the world through Exhibit A. In Exhibit A are those who follow Him. Exhibit A are people who are actually, honestly, giving their whole lives to the Lord Jesus, and He is working through them. How would the Holy Spirit manifest Himself in the church? That's the key, in the church, so that the world will know that there is a God in heaven that really is, you know, that would, that, that would get them to be interested in this God that we speak about. Well, the New Testament teaches two manifestations, okay? The New Testament teaches two manifestations of the Holy Spirit. A lot of people think that the manifestations of the Holy Spirit is speaking in tongues or is um, some kind of miraculous uh, manifestation or something out of the ordinary. Even Adventists believe that, who do not know much about this, they simply assume that to be a fact. You know, they, 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 they think, well, this must be so. Nothing really special is going on in my life, therefore the Spirit must not be really manifesting Himself. Two, only two manifestations, by the fruit and by the gifts. Those are the two manifestations of the Spirit in our lives. What does that mean? Well, the fruit is the direct result of the source, right? If you have an apple tree, you're going to have oranges? No, you're going to have apples, right? And if that fruit is healthy, you will probably have healthy apples. Good, nutritious, healthy apples. So the fruit has to do with the source. The fruit has to do with what's going on inside you. So whenever Jesus speaks about us giving fruit or bearing fruit, it's about what kind of character he's shaping ourselves to be. And that is the byproduct is the fruit, is what happens with what God is doing. Uh, fruit has to do with the nature of the source. The healthier the tree, the better the fruit. It's about character. It's what God is doing in you. And that's why the fruit of the Spirit is mentioned the way it is in Galatians 5, chapter 5, verse 22 and 3, right? It says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, uh, gentleness, and self-control. So it's a nine-flavored fruit, but it's a single fruit. And when you really compare this with other lists by Peter and Jesus, etc., you find great similarities. This is really the totality of what Jesus is like, His character, what He is like. So the fruit of the Spirit is this. It is not speaking in tongues. It's not doing some extraordinary miracles. The, the evidence of the Spirit is this. That's the first evidence of the Spirit. 
So I, you know, people ask me all the time, I said, you know, how do I know the Holy Spirit is in my life? And I said, take a look at that list. Is that happening in your life? Is, are, you, are you finding yourself to becoming more and more loving, more and more joyful? Do you have inner peace? Uh, is, is that a reality in your life? If that is a reality in your life, that's obviously the Holy Spirit working in your life. If that is not much of a reality in your life, maybe you're keeping the Holy Spirit at bay a little bit. You're just running your own life on your own. Listen to Jesus in John 15, verse 8. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to me my disciples. So Jesus minces no words about this. He says, so that you bear much fruit. It's not even saying fruit. He says much fruit. It's like a ton of it, right? He wants us to bear a lot of this fruit, and in that case, we're going to be, that will prove to be that we are His disciples. That's the evidence that we're His disciples. It is not how many Bible verses we can recite. It is not uh, how, you know, our, our, our church attendance. It's not how involved we are in ministry, really. It is how much the fruit of the Spirit is evidence in, evident in our life. And if that's the case... We are proving to be His disciples. Listen to this um, statement in Christ's Object, Lesson 67. The object of the Christian life is fruit-bearing. The reproduction of Christ's character in the believer, that it may be reproduced in others. Boy, that's a mouthful right there. Look at how clear the spirit of prophecy is on this. The object of the Christian life is fruit-bearing. That's the object of the Christian's life. That's the goal. That's the target. That's the, God's objective. That we may bear fruit, which is this character, this Christ character in us, right? And so it will impact other people. Now, what about the gifts of the Spirit? What about the gifts? Well, gifts are talents... But they're not just talents. They're opportunity, there's education, temperament. Everything God has given you forms part of a gift. Sometimes we think of spiritual gifts as something that is something, again, supernatural or unusual or, or strictly spiritual. When you really study the subject of spiritual gifts, it's, it is much more encompassing than that. It is whatever God has given you. And God has given you an opportunity for education, and everybody has a different temperament, and so that's part of your gift mix that He intends to use for His glory, right? Gifts are what God is doing through you, whereas the fruit is what God is doing in you. You see the difference? So He gives you gifts so that He can use you to help other people and to, and to connect with other people. But he, he gives you the fruit so that you become like Him, more and more like Him. A working church, Ellen White says in Medical Ministry 332, a working church is a living church. Church members, let the light shine forth. And then she mentions a few things. Your voice, your influence, your time. All these are gifts from God and are to be used in winning souls to Christ. So, 
time is also a gift. In fact, she says that of all the gifts God has given us, the, the gift of time, the, our use of the gift of time will be the one that he will, he will require the closest accountability. How do you use, how do I use my time? This is uh, Reginald Sibanda. Sibanda is a, a quite an extraordinary young man in Zimbabwe. When he was 28 years old, he was a lay preacher, lay leader, and he was so successful in holding evangelistic meetings that the conference approached him and I said, look, we have a really, really bad district that is not growing, hasn't been growing for a long, long time. There's a lot of spiritualism there. And I would like to ask you if you would be willing to take up the challenge and be the pastor there. Two, two church district, about 270 people in both churches. Every time they had started evangelistic meetings, for instance, the police would come and close it down the next day. I mean, nobody, you know, and spiritualism was rampant in that region, in that area. He took up the challenge. Now, this guy is a fairly unusual fellow, okay? He lives by faith, prayer, and Bible study. Those three things, and he really does. And when I met, you know, I had read about it, and I had researched him years ago. But then when I met him last November, I was really struck by his humility. That was a very, very impressive thing. Very humble, very Christ-like in so many ways. It was just, it was like we were, we were talking with an angel a little bit like that, you know. So Christ-like. He gets up at 2 o'clock in the morning to pray, all right? He gets up at 2 o'clock in the morning to play rain, uh, pray, rain or shine, and he says, I asked him, how many hours do you pray? And he says, well... I don't pray as much as I used to. I'm a little busy now. And, of course, he's busy. He has over 100 churches now. And, um, and uh, he says, I, I pray about four or five hours. And before that, that was eight hours, six to eight hours before that. Six to eight hours before that. Um, he started doing personal ministry in the local schools and hospitals and police stations, you know, all of these people who were against the Adventist church. And he started winning them over, so much so that most of the, most of the hospital personnel today is Adventist. Most of the public schools are Adventist. Okay, I'm talking about all these teachers and the, and the students and the families. Um, he taught members how to have a devotional life. And then he organized them into ministry groups. Now, in, in Sub-Saharan Africa, you have a tribal system, and, you, and it's a little easier to simply tell people, okay, we're going to do this. There's not, not a lot of discussion about that. You, you just do that, right? But you do that even if you want to. I mean, you, you, can, you can throw the plan array if you don't want to. The groups ministered to the community. They started visiting the sick. They helped the poor. They gave Bible studies. They shared their faith. And that is when it started exploding. And this, this little uh, district that was not growing 
exploded. He's self-sacrificial. You know, he gives as few people do. He, he has a very miserly uh, salary by the conference in Zimbabwe. But he gives about 80% of his money away. Many days he doesn't eat because he's giving that money to other people. Okay? Um, one example, one of his early converts was a really bright young man of 18 who was, uh, in, who was the son of a well-recognized businessman in the community. And it's unusual because most people are poor, but he was not. And his father had these visions about this boy going on to medical school and being a very important person, eventually in the government or major hospital being administrator. And he had the, the brains for that. But he, when he was converted, he decided to surrender his life completely to the Lord, and he decided to go into ministry. But of course, he didn't have any money now because the father who was going to uh, you know, support him financially to be a doctor now withdrew everything, and he says, you're no longer my son. So he is without anything. Uh, at the council of the pastor, he went nevertheless to the school. He went there hoping that maybe there could be something they could work out, and maybe he could work and then, and then do this. But the truth is, the school says, we're not even going to give you a job until you put 11,000 Zimbabwean dollars as a deposit as a, you know, to, to get started. That's not the equivalent of $11,000, American dollars, but it was a lot of money, and he didn't have anything. So he called the pastor, and the pastor, you know what the pastor said? Sibanda. He says, let's pray about this. The Lord will have a solution. And so they prayed about it, and he went to the conference office. And you would think that he's going to the conference office and see if he could get a, some kind of a loan for this promising young man to go to school. But that's not why he did. He wanted to talk with the treasurer. The treasurer kept him waiting for about three or four hours because they had meetings. What he wanted to do is to ask for an advance, a four-month advance on his own salary to give that money to the young man. What happened in the meantime is that another businessman who supplies uh, something to the schools in that conference popped in, a non-Adventist popped into the conference office and recognized him and made small talk and learned about the situation. And, and, then, and then he says, hmm. He went out and then an hour, an hour later he came back. This non-member businessman came back with a 15,000 Zimbabwean dollars check to give to him. And he said, you don't need to ask the conference anything. Use this, the 11,000 for the boy, and $4,000 more for you and your family. Well, the pastor didn't. The pastor went up there and gave the whole 15000 to the school for that young man to do. My point is, Christ-likeness also shows in this way, immense sacrifice 
great sacrifice. And that is perhaps one of the reasons why God really blesses, Simba, blesses Sibanda. After two and a half years of faithful work in this, in this place, in this place that was not growing, after two and a half years only, this is what the results are. The district membership went 200, from 273 to 21,256 members. And from two churches to over 120 churches in two and a half years. Yeah, those are accurate numbers. I know it just boggles the mind. But think about this. Two and a half years. In two and a half years. So we're talking about the kind of percentages that match some of the amazing stories we find in the book of Acts. And more so. When he came to see us, when we had him and we were able to visit with him personally, he told us, you know, I asked him, do you have any, any, any evangelistic meetings going on right now? And he says, over 90. 90 evangelistic meetings he has in his own district going on at that time. That's how he had trained his members, and, that's, and they were the ones that are holding this meeting. And then you, you can understand the kind of amazing, incredible growth that's taking place. But this is not because of methodology. This is not because of finances. This is not because you're cutting edge anything. This is because God is really working in Him and the fruit bears out. In fact, Sibanda bears much fruit in character and ministry. In character and ministry. But it takes that radical type of commitment to, you know, how many pastors today would say, I'll be willing to forego four months of my salary to help somebody? How many of us would do that? So how does the Spirit lead you to bear much fruit then? All right? That kind of fruit. How does the Spirit lead us to bear that much fruit. And this is, this is where the, the meat of it will take place. And that, I invite you to take your Bibles to, to John chapter 15. And uh, we'll read it from verses uh, 1 to 5. I have it on the screen too. Um, this is what Jesus said. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And the meaning of that is he takes up, and I'll explain it in a minute. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Look in verse 4. Abide in me, and I in you. Verse 5. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. How many times do we find the expression bearing fruit there? Four times. Four times. Let's analyze this. This is his process for us to bear much fruit. He, we start by bearing no fruit. And he takes us from bearing no fruit to bearing fruit. And then he takes us from bearing some fruit to bearing more fruit. Right? and then eventually to bearing much fruit. How does he take us from bearing no fruit 
to bearing fruit. The Bible says in verse 2, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Now, most people, through casual reading, say, okay, that means they, he, he destroys them. He takes them away. You know, it's like trash. It is not the same verb as in verse, in, in chapter, I mean, in verse 6. In verse 6, it is to destroy. And, 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 and the context is very clear that it is to destroy with fire and everything. But in verse 2, that's not the case. The verse 2 is a different verb that means to take up, to build up. Now, I used to live in Northern California. I used to pastor in Northern California where there are a lot of vineyards. And I currently live in, outside of uh, Berrien Springs and kind of in the country. And I'm surrounded with vineyards too. And I love it, especially about this time of the year. In about a month, we're going to start smelling the the, the, the sweet smell of grapes. Hmm? What happened with the, these farmers is that many times the lower branches, they stoop down and they get trampled on by animals or people and they get meshed with the, with the mud and they do not have exposure to the sun. They do not have exposure to the rain as the rest of the branches would, right? And it creates problems. And thus why the farmers, they do, they lift them up. They bend them out of their comfort zone because they are naturally going down, right? And so they lift them up, they tie them up, they clean them up so that they can be exposed to the sun and to the rain and to the air, they take him up. And this is exactly what Jesus is talking about here. If you do not bear any fruit, I'm going to bend you out of your comfort zone. I'm going, to, I'm going to force some things to happen in your life so that you are exposed, more exposed to me. This, this you know, anyway, if branches are not lifted up, they draw nourishment from another source that is from the ground directly instead of the vine, right? But the health of a branch is dependent on how well attached it is to the vine, not how well attached it is to the, to the soil. That's a vine issue, not a branch issue, right? So all we need to do, we are branches, all we need to do is we need to be attached to the vine and be exposed to the healthy properties needed for a vine, for a branch to grow and to develop and to flourish. In other words, adversity. That's the first tool God uses. He does not allow our lives to go exactly as planned. Because in that process then, He, he wants us to be more exposed to Him. Listen to this word from um, Ministry of Healing 470 and 71. Many who sincerely consecrate their lives to God's service are surprised and disappointed to find themselves, as never before, confronted by obstacles and beset by trials and perplexities. They pray for Christ-likeness of character, for a fitness for the Lord's work, and they are placed in circumstances that seem to call forth all the evil of their nature. They say, if God is leading us, why do all these things come upon us? 
It is because God is leading them that these things come upon them. Trials and obstacles are the Lord's chosen methods of discipline and His appointed conditions of success. He sees that some have powers and susceptibilities which rightly directed might be used in the advancement of His work. In His providence, He brings these persons into different positions and varied circumstances that they may discover in their character the defects which have been concealed from their own knowledge. He gives them opportunity to correct these defects and to fit themselves for His service. Often, He permits the fires of affliction to assail them that they may be purified. Show me somebody who is really being used by God and I'll show you somebody who has a lot of trouble. That is the way it is. But sometimes we may not, you know, it's not apparent to anybody else. We look at great men and women of God in history or even currently some of some of our more um, effective ministers or, or preachers or, you know, godly people, and we think that their life is all together. We don't recognize that they go through a lot of difficulties many times. But what they're doing is that they're exposing themselves to the son of righteousness. They are, they're giving themselves, they're turning to God every time. They're turning to God. They're being forced to do that because the only other option is to walk away from him altogether. But by turning to God, God is using them all the more for his glory. But that is just to bear some fruit. God is not finished with that. From bearing fruit, he wants to take us to bearing more fruit. Bearing more fruit. Look in verse 2 again. Every branch that bears fruit, right there in the middle of that slide, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Okay, if you thought that God bending you out of shape was uncomfortable... Imagine what pruning will be like. All right? What's pruning? Pruning is, you, you know, he's hacking. The, the farmer is hacking at you and, 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 and getting rid of excess foliage and getting rid of tendrils that are unnecessary in order for each of what's left to be healthier yet, to produce more. That's why pruning takes place. And everybody who knows anything about gardening or, or farming, they do pruning. And they don't prune in order to minimize the output. They actually prune in order to maximize the output of that tree, for instance, that fruit tree. Jesus says, that's the same thing God does in your life. But now he comes with the shears. And that hurts because he's actually taking some part of you out. That's what he is trying to do. N.T. Wright, a New Testament scholar, put it this way, the vine dresser, God, is never closer to the vine taking more thought about its long-term health and productivity than when he has the knife in his hand. And that's a beautiful statement. Think about it. That's God, right? That, God is that, that heavenly physician who knows exactly where to cut and how to cut it. 
So you know, because he loves you, right? He loves me. You know that if he's going to cut, it's going to hurt, and it better be the precise cut just for what it needs to do. So I think N.T. Wright is right when he says that he is he's never more careful than when he actually will cause you pain because his objective is to bring healing back all the more, you know, all the stronger after that. So how does God give you, take you from bearing more fruit? You know, now, l- l- let me pause this for a moment. How many times we, if somebody, a loved one or a friend has cancer, or they, they meet with a tragic accident, or they have a terrible turn of events in their life, we tend to think, many of us tend to think, you know, God is punishing, or God is forgetting, or where is God in all of this? When in reality, God may be using that as some serious pruning. Serious pruning. Twelve years ago, I almost died of malaria. Came back from Africa. I contracted malaria. And when they finally, I, I was away from home when that, it was in the States, but I was away from home when that came. And 105 fever could not keep anything down, could not even keep water down. That, now, that's, that's bad when you cannot even keep water down. You, have, you, you know, you throw it out. Barely made it back home, barely made it back home. They rushed me to the hospital, and I lost consciousness. I was already, it was falciparum malaria, and it was already affecting my, my brain, and I was delusional. I was seeing things and experiencing things that were not real. Falciparum malaria kills people. Um, and, and if they survive it, they don't get malaria again. There's four kinds of malaria. The other three uh, are milder, but they will keep popping up again. With falciparum malaria, you have to be infected a second time before you can have it again. Well, I almost lost it because this was in Tennessee and nobody knew anything about malaria because there's one case of malaria in the whole city every five years. Nobody knows anything about malaria and hospitals didn't have any, any medicine for that. And I knew it was dying and my wife knew it was dying and my friends, my medical friends were pushing, putting a lot of pressure on the hospital personnel to really do something radical to save this life because you're going to lose this guy. And I was thinking, what a blessing to re- get refocused. Seldom have I experienced as much peace as when I was so sick and I was ready to die because my life was completely in his hands. I, I chose nothing. I, I planned nothing. It was exactly where it needed to be. And, and it was a beautiful thing to experience that level of surrender. Now you may say, well, you were forced to surrender. Yes, that may be. But the point is, I knew that God was in control. And if he wanted to heal me, he could heal me. And if he didn't want to heal me, he didn't have to. Because he didn't owe me anything. 
I owed him everything. Everything. And I remember they anointed me one Sabbath afternoon. And that night, my wife thought I was going to die. She spent the night there with me. You know, people would pop in that room all the time. Oh, you're the malaria president, you know. Are you stopping for breakout sessions? Oh, yeah. That's, I, I didn't realize it gotten so late. Um, yes, I am. I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to finish in five minutes and then stop for five minutes and then resume. The next one won't be as long. Um, and what happened is that um, that night I survived it. And the next morning, the doctor, the, the specialist said, you know, the funniest thing, the blood work showed this morning you don't have malaria anymore, and we don't know why. Three days later, I was, I was dismissed, and I was teaching a week later. I know several friends who have had malaria that takes a month to get back to a full schedule. Bearing more fruit. How does God take you from bearing more fruit to bearing much fruit? Listen to this one. Abide in me and I in you. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Why abide in me when the branch is a natural appendage of the vine? Now think about it. Why would Jesus urge the branch to abide in the vine when the branch always does? Right? Is this a case that uh, the analogy doesn't work? No, it is not. The Bible says we are not natural branches to Jesus Christ. The Bible says in Romans 11 that we have been grafted onto Jesus, that we do not grow out of Jesus. We have been imported into Him. In fact, even the analogy is beautiful because the, the vine had to be cut in order to be inserted into it. Just like Jesus, he had to be cut down so we can be part of him, right? So the issue is, what happens when there is uh, a, a case of um, uh, organ transplant? What's the biggest issue the doctors have? The first issue. Rejection. Re rejection. You know, here, here's a new lung that's going to actually let you live, and yet the body wants to reject the source of life, Right? That's the natural tendency by us as sinful individuals. And Jesus says, I want you to abide. Abide means to hang on, by the way. That's an old English word. It means to hang on. Hang on to me. Hang on to me. It's the same as that lung. Hang on to me. Don't reject me. We did not choose the vine. He chose us. He did not choose me, but I chose you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should remain. This is what the Spirit does for you in the name of Jesus. He makes you bear much fruit. Much fruit. John 15, 8. Good fruit is a blessing to others. They eat it, right? And it honors the farmer. That's the two-fold two objective. Those blessed recognize how good it is and says, where did you get this? You know, what? where did you get this fruit? This is so good, right? And so it points back to the origin. So that means that bearing fruit is revealed in two ways. Bearing fruit is revealed in two ways. A Christ-like life, that's the fruit of the Spirit in your life. Revelation of Jesus from the inside out, Christ in us, that's the fruit of the Spirit at work, and a Christ-like burden for the lost. The mission of Jesus, Christ through us, 
and that is the use of the gifts of the Spirit at work. Well, I don't know if I can tell this story in one minute. Svea Flood was a Swedish uh, missionary, very dedicated to God. Nobody wanted to work in Dollera, that's area where no white person had ever been before. She finally convinced her husband to go there. The city father said, if you come closer than about a half a mile, we will kill you. So imagine, how can you do mission work? This is a long time ago, before the days of internet or, or phones or anything. How can you work with the people that you, the, closest, the closest you can be to them is a half a mile? That's the closest you can be to them. So she began to pray. And then by and by, an eight-year-old boy came around selling eggs. And Svia said, this is God's opportunity. And she started telling him all these stories of Jesus, all the Bible, about the God of heaven, the God who created the whole world, every week. And she kept asking him to come as often as possible every week and that she would buy all the eggs he had to offer. And sure enough, this happened for a number of months. And then Svia Flood got pregnant. And uh, when she delivered a few days later, she died. She got malaria and she died. Her husband was so discouraged, he gave the little girl to another missionary family and he went back home. He was totally depressed about this. The two, the other couple that had worked with him, the Ericsons, they gave up also, hopelessly. No, 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 they were killed. They were killed. That's what happened to them. So all of this work for nothing, you know, all this effort for nothing, right? Well, this little girl was given to an American mission, missionary couple, and then they went back to the States. She grew up in the States. Years later, she got married to a minister, and one day she saw a paper in Swedish in her inbox, in her mailbox. She couldn't read it. She asked somebody else to read it. And the reason is she saw a picture of her mother's tombstone in Central Africa and wanted to know what was that about. Two years later, she went to a, an international conference of, of evangelists in, um, in London. And one of the speakers was from Doleda. And he told this great stories about how God was really working in their midst and that now there were over 100,000 Christians in Doleda. And she said, how could that possibly be? Somebody else must have gone in. What happened, you know? I mean, and then she sought to speak with him afterwards. And, and the more he listened to her, the more he says, I know who you are. You are that little girl that was born to Svea Flood when I was a little boy of eight and gave sold eggs to your mother. What happened? Svea Flood poured Jesus onto him on that little eight-year-old boy. 
So much so he shared that with his family. He shared that with his friends. They, the parents were so convicted. They were converted to whatever they could be converted to. All of these stories, of the, they were converted to that story. And they said, how are we going to teach our children about that? And so they started, they, they started a school. Can you believe this? No missionary, no Bible, nothing. They started a school to teach others these great stories about the true God of heaven. And by this time, I mean, after a few, you know, they had like 600 people already converted in Dora. And that, and that spread and spread and spread until 30 years later, 110,000 people. It was Via Flood who led me to Jesus Christ. I was the boy who sold eggs to your mother before you were born. Christ-like ministry and Christ-like life. And that is the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, bearing much fruit. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the teaching of Scripture and for the power of God. We thank you for how much you hope in us and will do for us if we let you all the way. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.